This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Get an extra three months of ExpressVPN free at expressvpn.com slash missionlog. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash missionlog. Expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 468, Dreadnought. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every episode of Star Trek, examining them for their morals, meanings, and messages, and determining if they withstand the test of time. This week, Dreadnought, the one where a doomsday machine from Bolana's past catches up with both her and Voyager in the Delta Quadrant. John will return shortly with trivia, but first, let me tell all of you how you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, here we go. Trivia for Dreadnought. We have a story written by Gary Holland. Now, a couple of episodes ago, we mentioned a story credit for Mike DeLuca, who is a studio executive flexing some creative muscle when he pitched what became Threshold. Well, he wasn't the first. Here, we welcome back Gary Holland, who was an executive in the advertising and promotion department of Paramount Television in the 90s. You might remember that he successfully sold The Collaborator and Children of Time stories to DS9 a couple of years prior to this outing. Uh, That wraps up the total of his Star Trek script contributions. Now, it's just his name in the credits, but as we all know, things in the writer's room are collaborative. Lisa Klink actually scripted this episode into its final form. It was directed by LeVar Burton. No introduction necessary there, except to say that this is the second Voyager episode out of the eight that LeVar directed. The first one we saw was ex post facto. And all of this was happening concurrently while LeVar was racking up his 10 directorial credits on DS9. Let's talk about the title for a moment, a few words about Dreadnought. Now, the original use is, uh, well, it's from a 1906 Royal Navy battleship called Dreadnought, and that ship was so powerful and so cutting-edge that that, in fact, became the name of a class of battleships that followed. So the name sort of caught on, and that, that became the namesake for 
the vessel in this episode. And a few words indeed about set design. So this is an episode with pretty limited use of new sets. In fact, a lot of the graphics and set elements were borrowed from DS9 in order to pull off the Dreadnought interior. Additionally, the design team made it very easy for the photography department by making all of the lights on that set practical. This is something that they had practiced doing on DS9 with how the promenade was laid out. Without having to place extensive studio lighting everywhere, that meant that the crew could make extensive use of Steadicam and just follow the action rather than having to relight static setups every time. Let's meet our guest stars. Well, we have some returning players, of course. Raphael Sabarge is back as Michael Jonas, and Nancy Hauer is back as Samantha Wildman. We actually do have a new Kazon who is having secret calls with Jonas. That would be Lorem, played by Michael Spound. Starting in the early 80s with TV appearances, Michael soon had a recurring role on the series Hotel, and he ended up marrying his co-star from that show. He has appeared in everything from soap operas to feature films like Must Love Dogs and The Ring. By the way, he was on The Love Boat three times. This is the first of his two Star Trek appearances, and personally, I can't wait to meet the rest of Lorem's family, Ipsum and Dollar. Uh, that's a joke for all you typesetters out there. Finally, we briefly get to know the leader of an alien species on Rakosa 5. That would be Kellen, played here by Dan Kern. Dan also got his start in front of the camera in the early 80s, and he appeared as a guest star on the short-lived fantasy sci-fi series Voyagers. A few years after that, he made his first and only other Star Trek appearance in the TNG episode, We'll Always Have Paris. If you don't remember, that one is not about Tom Paris. I hope you're ready to hear about Bellana playing a very complicated game of Missile Command. Prologue. Ensign Samantha Wildman is in the infirmary for her latest prenatal exam with the doctor and Kess. Samantha confesses that she's having difficulty finding a suitable name for her baby, aside from Grestrendrek, after her Katarian husband and honoring his culture's tradition. Samantha bounces a few ideas off the doctor, who is apparently able to find fault with the origin of every name considered, except one, Benarin, a name that Kess suggests because it's her father's name. After Samantha leaves, the doctor appears slightly wounded that Kess never considered Benarin for his name. Meanwhile on the bridge, Voyager comes across a small debris field of shattered duritanium hull fragments of what may have been a probe or a shuttlecraft, and after close analysis of the remains, Chakotay and Torres both confirm that the energy signature that destroyed the small vessel was indeed Cardassian. Janeway wonders if Seska is responsible, but Balana confesses that she herself is to blame. Act 1. In the briefing room, Bellana is in the middle of explaining what happened to the probe as a disheveled and tardy Tom Paris briefly interrupts the proceedings. As Tom finds his seat, both Bellana and Chakotay explain that the probe was destroyed by a Cardassian experimental missile codenamed Dreadnought, an unstoppable doomsday machine capable of destroying a small moon. Dreadnought succeeded in every way to penetrate the Maquis defenses, but failed to detonate on impact. Balana sees the opportunity to reprogram it to destroy a Cardassian fuel depot on Ashland 5. However, it was in the Badlands at the same time Voyager was whisked away by the caretaker's beam, 
So Balana's theory is that at the same time, it happened to Dreadnought. Janeway orders Balana and Tom to upgrade the navigational sensors to find the missile so Balana can reprogram it from the inside. As the bridge crew is dismissed, Chakotay confronts Tom regarding his lack of professionalism, to which Tom almost rises to the occasion, but pauses and returns to duty. In the engine room, a few confessions are shared between Tom and Balana. She admits that she was solely responsible for launching Dreadnought's attack without Chakotay's final approval, and she still feels guilty for breaking his trust. Balana coaxes Tom to admit that he's just not quite fitting in anymore, bemoaning a Lieutenant Rollins who frowned upon Tom's lack of Starfleet punctuation protocol in his most recent report. Tom asks Balana, what's the point of all of this anyway, being so far away from Starfleet? But he admits that he's wrong, and about a great many things. After completing their navigational sensor upgrades, Tom and Balana return to the bridge. Their work pays off and Harry makes contact with Dreadnought's warp signature. Balana informs everyone that the missile is smart and knows how to throw off sensor locks. But after isolating its true warp trail, Balana and Chakotay both confirm that Dreadnought has locked its targeting scanners on a heavily populated Class M planet and is three weeks away at present course and speed. Act 2. In a darkened room, Michael Jonas contacts his handler in the Kazon Nistrum, at first to tell Seska about the Dreadnought missile, but suddenly has to break contact for fear of his signal being discovered during the broadcast of another subspace transmission. On the bridge, Captain Janeway makes first contact with Kellen, first minister of Rakosa 5, and the planet where Dreadnought is currently headed. As she tries to explain what is happening, Janeway is taken aback by Kellen's remarks about how she and Voyager are dangerous and threatening. Janeway tries to assuage Kellen by explaining that the Kazon is to blame for these allegations and that she and Voyager are only there to aid in neutralizing the weapon. Kellen is skeptical but has no other choice but to accept Janeway's assistance. Meanwhile, Balana beams over to Dreadnought and immediately establishes her rapport with Dreadnought's computer, which still speaks in Balana's voice. After running a series of diagnostics and after several conversations with the computer, Balana tries to convince Dreadnought that it is there by accident, that its programming is malfunctioning, and that it has wrongly chosen a planet as its target. After the computer analyzes all of the data presented, it reboots and stands down, allowing Balana to place it in a power-saving mode and return to Voyager. Mission accomplished. Later, during a debriefing with Janeway and Chakotay, Balana informs him that Dreadnought is ready to be salvaged for much-needed spare parts and supplies. However, Tom Paris interrupts with grave news. Dreadnought just powered up and sped off at Warp 9, back on its original course with Rakosa 5. Act 3. After giving chase, Dreadnought has quickly proven two things to Voyager. One, Balana's access codes no longer work, preventing her from beaming aboard the missile. And two, Voyager's firepower is no match for Dreadnought's shields and defensive capabilities. Balana tries to reason with Dreadnought's computer, who responds by stating that Balana has been compromised by the Cardassians and is now working for the enemy and is trying to deceive Dreadnought's mission parameters. Running out of options, Balana remembers the missile's Thoron shock emitter is vulnerable after firing its weapons at full power against enemy targets, and Voyager provokes Dreadnought to do just that. However, after trying to exploit Dreadnought's Thoron emitter with a tachyon beam, the missile adapts and sends a feedback surge through the beam which cripples Voyager's systems to a dead stop. Unable to pursue, Janeway contacts First Minister Kellen to update him on their dire situation. He informs her that he scrambled his defense fleet to intercept the missile. 
Janeway tells him his fleet is no match for the missile's weapons, but the minister pushes back at her, declaring he has to do something other than just wait for the inevitable. Later in the transporter room, Harry tries to bolster Bellana's spirits. She blames herself for failing to stop Dreadnought in the past when she had the chance. However, Harry tells her that obsessing about past mistakes won't change anything and is only distracting her from what has to be done in the here and now. And with those parting words of wisdom, Harry successfully transports Bellana back aboard Dreadnought. However, the missile's computer is prepared for Bellana's intrusion and sends an electric shock through a conduit where Bellana was trying to gain access. However, the missile's computer is prepared for Bellana's intrusion and sends an electric shock through a conduit where Bellana was trying to gain access, and the computer admits to being currently distracted by 15 new priority targets approaching at high speeds. To Bellana's dismay, it is the Rakosan fleet. Act 4. On the bridge, Janeway explains to the lead Rakosan ship that she has a crewman aboard the missile and for them to stand down, but the Rakosan pilot expresses firmly that he has his orders and for Janeway to take her issue up with his superiors. Over comms, Bellana informs Janeway that she is still making progress on neutralizing Dreadnought from the inside and that the Rakosan fleet is distracting the computer from fully noticing it is being sabotaged. Janeway informs Bellana that a transporter lock will be on her at all times, and then orders Tuvok to provide covering fire for the Rakosan attack run. Inside Dreadnought, as soon as Bellana feels like she is making any headway, the computer chimes in and tells her that new backup systems have once again been created to prevent any further tampering. And Bellana, once again, initiates the verbal logic chess game with the computer in an attempt to prove once and for all that the computer's original parameters are faulty and must be reinitialized. And ultimately, round after round, after round, after exhausting round of logic jousting, Balana fails to convince Dreadnought that it was accidentally transported to the Delta Quadrant. And because of the high improbability of such a claim, the computer believes that Balana has been coerced by the enemy and is currently a Cardassian agent, which forces Dreadnought to terminate all life support systems immediately and proceed to Stage 1 and its final detonation sequence. Act 5 in Janeway's ready room, Kellen informs her that evacuations have begun. Janeway tries to reassure him that she will do everything possible in order to stop the missile, including using Voyager herself to collide with Dreadnought to stop it, not knowing if such an act of sacrifice would even work. But it's worth the price to save the lives of two million people. And with that, Kellen tells Janeway that her sullied reputation isn't deserved, and she has made a new ally with him and the Rakosans. Meanwhile on Dreadnought, the computer doesn't understand why Balana has chosen to stay on board while her life support has been terminated, but it is interested that Balana is trying to access an obsolete Cardassian data file. Back on Voyager, Janeway briefs Tuvok and Chakotay on her plan to breach Voyager's warp core to create an explosion powerful enough to stop the missile. Chakotay begins evacuating all non-bridge personnel from the ship as Janeway initiates the self-destruct sequence. On Dreadnought, Bellana has finally reached the original male Cardassian-voiced operating system and uses it to confuse the two operating systems, causing malfunctions to happen and a hatch panel to open. Bellana uses it to shimmy on her back through a crawl space and into Dreadnought's reactor core. As Bellana begins cutting into the core's defensive casing, on Voyager, Janeway orders everyone off the bridge to get to their escape pods. However, Tuvok logics his way to stay by her side, as he is always wont to do. Time is running out for both ships, and Janeway informs Bellana that her transport window is shrinking, and even though Bellana is close to cutting through Dreadnought's warp core containment field, she is rapidly losing consciousness without life support to sustain her. The computer makes one last attempt to stop her, but Bellana remains resolute to see this to the end. 
Just as the missile explodes, Janeway beams Bellana away just in time and into sickbay where the doctor is waiting, reminding Janeway as such via the emergency medical holographic channel. Bellana is singed but safe, allowing Janeway and Tuvok to recover the crew in their escape pods and bring them home. The end. I see John on the recap, Norman. Look, I know that we have to focus. We we really have to talk about Dreadnought and the threat that it posed and Bellana's journey here. But can I just stop us for a moment to say, mm-hmm. my God, has Samantha Wildman still not had her kid? Weird. Just Can she just have the kid already? Can we just have a child born on Voyager already because this is taking forever. Yeah, I kind of wish that they brought up a little bit more of like the half-human, half-Katarian issue with the pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. And Picardo could have, he could have played that off perfectly with some snippy remark. He had many, many snippy remarks Mm -hmm. in this, just in that one scene. But I really like the bit about picking the name because, of course, in the EMH makes it about himself. Naturally. Uh, but it was really clever and, uh, and really fun. So everyone on Voyager, and let's just go all the way to the entire fandom of Star Trek. In Star Trek, you wear a mm-hmm. uniform. All the uniforms mm-hmm. are neat to a pin up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And I guess that up to a certain point is your hair. Because so Tom is on the bridge at the beginning. And he's neat as a pin because his hair is combed. He is late to Balana's briefing wearing the same uniform. And only his hair is tousled, which means that he's a wreck. What is that about? (laughs) What if that's just his style that day? What if he's just like, I I don't want to, uh, I don't want to fix my hair today. Like, does he not have that freedom? Because, yeah, I, I love how the sloppy version of Tom Paris is literally just that his hair is messed up because his uniform is. Uh, well, it, it's just like all the other Starfleet uniforms. Like, it, it's space age materials; they don't wrinkle anyway. Right. So yeah. it's, it's so, not like there's spaghetti all over uh, it or something, right? Exactly. I've got more to say about Tom okay. later for sure. For sure. Um, by the way, exactly how much other stuff got pulled into the Delta Quadrant along with Voyager? Because you got Voyager, you got the Maquis ship. Now he just introduced this other thing. Apparently, you know, hundreds of years ago, you got a 1937 truck. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, just I, they don't need to go home. They can just go a little further and they're just going to keep running into stuff the, the place is lousy with artifacts from the uh, alpha it quadrant. would have been funny like somewhere along a line in the alpha quadrant like starfleet said so all of our problems the badlands are they're solved what happened <laughs> and then <laughs> right. later in the delta quadrant just chaos everywhere right oh totally yeah yeah, yeah exactly speaking of chaos in the delta quadrant so <laughs> the expression that that janeway has when kellen said so your reputation precedes you, Captain, etc. And she's like, really, you two get off this yeah. record player on repeat. What's going on? Yeah. Like, how do I fix this? Because this is uh, and also <laughs> how like far and wide is like Kazon social media? Because they are literally I, like trashing my rep. I, truly. Yeah, they, they are masters of propaganda. Yeah. That is incredible the way that's happened. I did like... Okay, so I'm going to come up with something, and and you clever people out there have probably already come up with. But when when Bellana like gets on Dreadnought, I love seeing the old kind of like Cardassian design and Cardassian Elcars. Yeah. Is that yeah? Is that Clars instead of Elcars? Like, is that 
It's C L A R C S Clarks. Clarks. Cool, cool cars. Cardassian Library cool car, Computer Access Retrieval yes. System. <laughs> but <laughs> nice. In, in, in all seriousness, it's, it's nice to see that kind of cultural styling and familiarity in the Delta Quadrant again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was very cool to see, and I I like the mix of because like the episode is a product of its time. I like the mix of you have all of those um, you know photostatic prints that are backlit that look gorgeous. That lighting mm-hmm. colors, but I'll have a lot to say about how this was produced, you know. But then the computer screens where they have really rudimentary animations, but they really work. They they're really good, yeah. and and as a practical on that set, they just look mm-hmm. great. Speaking of sharing Cardassian information, Jonas, my dude, mm. you are just coming across as so desperate. Okay, just listen to me. The Kazon, they're just not that into right. you. Okay, yeah. give it a rest. Give it a rest. Do you think yeah. that it would have been since they since they switched actors from like handler to handler? Do you think they should have just yeah. had somebody like in shadow, maybe? Just kind of like oh, interesting. So you yeah. see a Kazon silhouette with the crazy hair, and you know, obviously the silhouette of a Kazon male with the voice, and kind of maybe the voice is modulated so it's you know like a serial killer. But then you don't have to worry about other actors. You don't have to worry about Lorem or Ipsum or Dolar yep. ever. Or, yeah, uh, all three yeah. of them doesn't matter. Yeah, so, just saying. <laughs> At yeah. timestamp seventeen minutes. So mm-hmm. I love playing miniature games, and in a miniature game player, we love our trays of. This is with a P, folks, by the way, P as in Paul, plucked mm. foam, mm. right? Where you mm-hmm. pluck, you know, certain squares out to create certain shapes. Yeah. And when yeah. Bellana like, opens up her engineering kit, like, in Dreadnought's, um, uh, I guess, Dreadnought's bridge, there's, like, a series of, like, gear in plucked foam, like, fitted. And I'm like, that is gorgeous. Yeah. But right. also begs the question that Velcro and plucked foam are still a thing in the 24th century. I couldn't get any better. Be, right? No. It no, can't be. No. That that is the the apex of that technology. Um for for fans of a certain generation, we're all feeling kind of like the 2001 uh like vibes, right? With Dreadnought. Uh, oh, so much so. And you know that that was if not purposeful like hey, we're going to make it look like this. At the very least, you get on set, you realize what you're doing, and you go like, oh, we're mm-hmm. doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But it, again, very satisfying. And even the yeah. computer said, how did you sleep last night? I'm like, oh. Yes! I uh, loved it. Loved it. <laughs> so the Star Trek tradition of when all else fails, fire like a tachyon beam. I love that. Sure. Yeah. But my note is, does Harry swear a lot? Because when he said, what the hell, it just kind of struck me as being like, Harry doesn't swear. Does Harry swear? I, I don't think he ever has. Yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah. Interesting. Oh, you know, they grow up so fast. It's that fast. Tom Paris with his disheveled <laughs> hair, you know? Bad there influence. we go. He's a bad influence. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I, I had this look. This is a crazy idea. And I know that, you know, sometimes we float these out there because they're just so radical. But here's a crazy mm-hmm. idea. Okay. Go with me. Since Bolana Taurus has a working knowledge of all of the very advanced systems on Dreadnought, and it <laughs> seems to withstand all manner of destructive forces, maybe, may, just maybe, she could modify Voyager's systems with things like uh, adaptable shielding? I'm dying. I'm dying here. 
You're killing me. I just, I, I'm just throwing it. Look, it's just a possibility. Oh, just throwing it out John, there. John, okay. your vaunted Vulcan logic. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you're right. It's it's fun. It's it's funny because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right, right. Because I, I mean, they set it up, or they set us up for it. Where at the beginning, she's like, "Yeah, I, I built it. It's my problem. Like, it's my weapon." Yeah, we know it's Cardassian parts, but you, you perfected it, and you know that system inside yeah. and out. So, all right, you want to share the game? We're missing here? a scene, Jane Doyce. Like, <laughs> so you're saying that this is your code? So why can't you bring yeah. your code, you know, to work for right. us? Have we right. not earned that Work yet? Work harder. Yeah. I do like uh, – and I don't know like if, if uh, Roxanne like researched or, or worked with somebody like on her physical acting. But her physical acting with like engineering, engineering gear and looking at all the different components, lifting up you know, pieces of uh, equipment and plates and rods and things like that. It was all very believable. And I'm sure – and you know like Star Trek fans do this. Like they look at these things specifically for continuity and you know for consistency and i thought that her physical acting as an engineer in the continuity of star trek was very good you know it's cool i would love to know her process because i read later uh, a quotation from lavar burton who was saying that working with her that as an actor she is so prepared and so dedicated and so focused he said it's just i mean look Lavar comes from the cast of Next oh my Gen, God. who are all who are all great, but then he's pointing out. I know it just yep. blew your mind, right? Yeah, <laughs> but you know he's worked with them, but then he points out, and specifically Roxanne Dawson is like she takes it beyond like her level of preparation is incredible. no, it's I just forgot, and you just reminded me with two words, Lavar Burton, Lavar Burton's Jordy. Like, I don't, like, why don't yeah, I remember? Oh, but it's like, now you're like an engineer is directing an engineer. Oh my an God, why didn't yeah. I put that together? There we that's go. Ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Mind no. blown. That's that, that's that yeah. sound. Yeah. I, I do want to say one of the few times in Star Trek, because I know that I'm always harping on uh, showing rather than telling. And in some scenes, I think that is way more important. But this is one of those few times that I think telling was more effective than showing. And that is taken as a whole all those conversations between Janeway and Kellen mm-hmm. they were played so well so, with such a level of intimacy they're personal and they get across all the relevant information we actually don't need to see the whole population of Rakosa 5 you don't need right. it because just having that one person and this very heartfelt conversation did it all so bravo to the efficiency of the writing there so at timestamp 34 minutes i like mm-hmm. like i like it when actors just bring us a little extra and this is where balan is like looking at uh an l cars display or a coal cars mm-hmm. display coal cars Car. display <laughs> and it's point of view of the display looking at her and she's she's straining her eyes where her eyes are actually twitching now i don't know if that's just you know coincidental oh, yeah. with roxanne i know that she wears glasses a lot at least she does when she's directing mm-hmm. or she had eye strain that day or she is exhausted or all of the above but it's just those little things where you're she's like scanning like for the most like the the, the, the smallest needle in the largest haystack for that one program and her eyes are literally like straining underneath the pressure of that and i thought that was really marvelous as a as a bit that's of acting. a good point yeah yeah, yeah. Again, physical acting, and it's so real when it's done like that. Yeah, you're mentioning the coal cars. 
I so appreciate the old school effects of the dreadnought attacks on those uh, Rakosan fighters. Because, again, it's one of those things where you can just sort of give the audience just enough information and you fill in the blanks. What we see on screen is very quick. It's very simple. And when you cut back to the computer display, it's almost a very 1978 Battlestar Galactica throwback Mm -hmm. where you just see the dots disappear off the tactical display. Yep. I thought that was so yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. And, really and worked. You can yeah. you can fill in the blanks. You know, most people, you know, they yep. just, they decide yep. to do that. You know, uh, and and some people like seeing like everything spelled out. But I do like the kind of like the ambiguity where you fill in the blanks with your own imagination, and I think it's more effective that way. I loved like the Cardassian set, you know, in the bridge area of Dreadnought. But I really loved kind of like the Cardassian version of the Jeffries tube towards the end. <sighs> Yeah, I just I I am just yeah. a fan of that aesthetic. You know, I'm not a fan of the Cardassians per se, but I just really like those those copper tones, kind of like that more industrial type of design, uh, and yeah. and just kind of linking the you know the Alpha Quadrant Cardassians, you know, kind of like with this Delta Quadrant space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, just so people listening don't think that all we do is bag on DS9. (laughs) You know, I've said over and over again, the DS9 has so many great strengths. And one of those strengths was redeveloping kind of the design language of Star Trek and the design language around an alien culture. Mm -hmm. And that Cardassian style really sticks, It's really distinctive and just inspired the way they bring it here but also physically made that set work because all the stuff they learned from making that physical set work over on the promenade bring it here and it just frees up the creativity it's you know that what also reminds me of it reminds me of the menus mm-hmm. that were authored for the dvd sets of deep space nine because they're done in that style of course yes absolutely yeah so I have a small quote to bring up, and I just want to make people think. This is mm-hmm. just kind of like priming you for the discussion part, which we're going to get to soon. So Dreadnought says, this vessel is programmed to respond with all necessary force to prevent any disruption to its mission. So why is Bolana still alive? <laughs> like, why didn't she just get, <laughs> yeah. like, gassed, you know, or electrocuted or something? Because the longer Dreadnought keeps her alive, the more that Bolana can do something to stop Dreadnought. So in the programming, why didn't that happen? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the best it can do is cut off life support, but even then that takes time. Mm-hmm. So that's a good yeah. question. That's a very good curious. question. I wonder if the, just the recognition there is maybe a little too much for Dreadnought's circuits mm-hmm. to handle. I don't know. I, I got to say, you know, we've had our share of dramatic self-destruct moments, almost self-destruct moments. Um, and, you know, by the way, Lon Suter, again, confined to quarters. He's just hanging out. And then all of a sudden, well, we're going to self-destruct. Maybe, maybe or maybe not. Somebody gets him to an escape pod. Not sure. <laughs> but, That's a great question. Uh, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. right. But I really liked how this episode kind of flips the script on how we handle certain scenes like that. As you get closer to the end, camera shaking, it's much more dramatic. But in those early moments, deciding to self-destruct, mm-hmm. just like those moments of conversation with Kellen, they're played quietly, they're played subtly. And I think that can be just as effective driving home the drama. And uh, speaking of like that entire sequence, so Tuvok requests to stay with the captain, uses logic kind of like as 
almost like an olive branch, like, you know, captain. It's logical that you have someone second in command unless, you know, you get incapacitated that you won't be able to, you know, finish self-destructing the ship. And and I like that oh. there wasn't really more said about that. It was just they look at each other and they're like, are we overmeld? Like, yeah, we're overmeld. Hey. <laughs> Hey, look, uh, I'm not saying it's just a purely logical decision, but uh, if he knew that they might make it out alive, uh, Tuvok knows who uh, who makes the recommendations for a promotion. Never mind a morale officer. It's starting to sound like Janeway needs to promote somebody to public relations officer. We'll get right back to Dreadnought after a word from this week's sponsor. You know, John, I don't know if you know this, but did you know, did you know that using the internet without ExpressVPN is like walking your dog in public without securing your dog on a leash? I wouldn't do that. No. It's dangerous. You never know what's going to happen. It's kind of like, well, most of the time you think, yeah, this is probably going to be fine. But what if your dog like one day like runs away or... You know, it gets dog napped or oh, or attack somebody. No, heartbroken. Right? Yeah. So that. yeah, that's you don't want these things to happen, and it's better to be careful, especially when it's just as simple as using ExpressVPN. Uh, see, that's the key. It is so simple. ExpressVPN is incredibly simple. Now, look, every time you connect to an unencrypted network uh, in public somewhere, you're in a cafe, coffee shop, hotel, airport, whatever, your online data is not secure. In fact, any hacker on the same network can gain access and steal your personal data. And, you know, it would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. That's what you want, because ExpressVPN creates this secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that these hackers can't get to you. That, that's what I want. I want it to take them a billion years to be able to hack what I'm doing online. That, that seems like a nice, comfortable uh, frame for me. <laughs> now, ExpressVPN works on all of your devices, a phone, a laptop, tablet, even on your smart TV. And like we were saying before, it is so easy to use. You literally just open the app, click one button that says connect, and you're connected and all of your data is protected. So I use it on all of my devices. I use it on my phone, especially because I find myself out and about having to do something sensitive, like maybe uh, log into a bank app, something like that. And I don't want to do that on an unprotected network. And so it's just as easy as putting a collar on your dog just to make sure your dog is safe and free from harm. So you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Expressvpn.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, I realize that this is, of course, a heavy Bolana episode, but we got to get back to Tom here for a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are we doing with Tom? Because it, it seems strange. Uh, look, for all the fun that we can make of an episode like Threshold, that episode is a big growth moment for 
Tom Paris. And we've seen all these little growth moments for Tom Paris over time. So it seems a little out of left field that the writers have just kind of decided at, at some point that they need to rough up his edges a bit. But it, it's another thing when that kind of feels like it starts without reason and feels poorly conceived, especially because we just came out of something a, a bit heavier with him. And I'm not sure what the answer is here. Now, look, we're not jumping the timeline. We're not getting ahead episode by episode. We're dealing with what we have right now with the way the episodes are unfolding right now. Mm-hmm. He started out with a chip on his shoulder, but then I feel like Voyager did a very good job of wearing that down, just softening him up a little bit. And I would even say more believably than some of the other characters on the show. So this move feels a bit uh, unmotivated. Maybe that's the word that I'm looking for. Maybe I'll be surprised. Maybe I'll be pleased that it pays off. But it seems strange in an episode like this to just jump over and say, well, he's disheveled and he's being a jerk again. In this episode, we have a weird instance of Tom's personality. In the previous episode, Meld, we also had another weird instance of Tom's personality, both of which are actually occupying the B story space since Threshold. What I would like to suggest, and maybe we can do this, you know, uh, put this in some type of Tom tracker for Mission Log Voyager, right? (laughs) Where we're seeing like these instances of kind of like these really strange quirks of his personality popping up in the B stories, which aren't making any sense to the overall narrative. Now, believe me, I I would rather them for them to make sense. But is it possible that we're actually seeing a serialization in Tom's story that we're just not seeing quite yet? The reason why I'm saying this is because maybe it's because of one particular line. I'm, I'm going to quote this particular scene where sure. he's kind of like bemoaning the whole, like, I can't believe I got to like put punctuation in my reports because who cares? Mm-hmm. We're not even like near Starfleet anyway. But then he kind of, just like when he confronted Chakotay, he kind of takes a deep breath and has like this weird, like realization where he's like, Nope, I'm wrong. I'm wrong about a lot of things. And I think that he's struggling with the Tom Paris that everyone wanted him to be and the Tom Paris that he wants himself to be. And I think that that's where we were at the end of Threshold, where he's like, I have a lot of personal thresholds that I need to, you know, get past. And I Mm -hmm. think that's that's what we're seeing here. In Meld, he's like, I've reverted back to my old ways of being kind of a punk. And Mm -hmm. Chakotay called me on it. And now I did something where I am also being called out on the carpet by Chakotay, but I'm not giving him the Chakotay hard time like I did in Meld, where he's like, someone's got to write the reports, right? Yeah. He didn't mouth off. <laughs> right. And he admitted right. to, to, he yeah. admitted to Bellana that there's something that's, there's something that he's wrestling with that we just can't see. And I think he's starting to shed the Tom that's expected versus the Tom that is. I see I get it that it, it it's not without reason that it's not without motivation. I think it's and maybe honestly this is a discussion saved uh for the next segment and for episodes yet to come. It feels like this is a very clunky way to get this back into the episodes. Yeah. Um to to get this personal struggle in there because 
we started out on one path and look characters have to have arcs characters have to have flaws characters have to be relatable all of this stuff i get it it feels it feels immature even for tom paris especially because like i said you know we we're a season and a half into the show and he has been built up. He has matured in many ways. Mm-hmm. And you and I have pointed out the episodes where you go, wow, okay, they really nailed it. They really let him grow. They really let him be the hero and earn the moment. And now it just seems like he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. <laughs> and that's that's not good enough for me. Yeah. You know, so I'm curious to see where we go with this. I I think it is playing out in an extraordinarily clunky way right now that's distracting from the rest of the stories. Maybe if something had been hinted at earlier where instead of just him firing back at somebody, there are moments that we see of this development in his character. Yeah, all I can hope for is, again, we'll we'll see this maybe kind of ironed out a little bit more in future episodes. But as of right now... um I, I think they're trying something. It's just mm-hmm. not. It's just not probably being presented in the way that they're trying to translate it to screen. Um, yeah. So, and, and another thing that I want to bring up that's I think that's it's being attempted, but I'm not sure if it's being translated to screen that well. It's kind of like this repetition of. Uh, the reputation for Janeway and Voyager that precedes them in the Delta Quadrant. Because, <laughs> again, you know, with Kellen being the first minister of a planet that they've never met, and a planet at, at I think at the time where they contacted them where it was like three days out, right? So, yeah. Or, or three days according to like subspace communications. You guys are smart. You guys can do the math. But this this minister has already heard of Voyager. From who? The Kazon, I, I know. supposedly, right? Right. But then, like, in previous episodes, you had, like, in Cold Fire, you had uh, Tannis saying that your reputation as a ship of destruction precedes you, Captain. Then Augurus, yeah. even though from a fascist state, said that in Resistance. And right. now Kellen says this, and the, and the Kazon certainly believe this. So all of these episodes have different writers and different directors. So where is this consistency coming from? The showrunners? Rick Berman, Michael Piller, Jerry Taylor. Is this something that's... Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's got to be from, I, I'd say at the very least, Jerry Taylor on down, mm-hmm. that you, you've got something in there saying, hey, by the way, here's what's happening. The reputation of Voyager isn't so good right now. But the problem that I have, which is the same thing that you have, it's a question of where is this coming from exactly and how is this getting spread? Right. I, I, I think it would be more believable maybe if the distances that were involved were a lot shorter and the distance of time were a lot shorter. Mm-hmm. But for this to be like week after week for months, you just hearing like, oh, yeah, your reputation's terrible. By whom? <laughs> <laughs> where, where, you know, where is this getting spread? And can we please, you know, do we need to assign somebody from our crew to respond to whatever Facebook posts mm-hmm. the Kazan Nistrum are posting about us? Because, come on. And then it's the legitimacy of what the Kazan are saying. It's the Kazan. Right. 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 So it's kind of like who's believing that, right? You're looking at their posts and you're like, "Oh, this, you know, the K's on. They're straight up trolls." We all know this, but we're not going to give Voyager the benefit of the doubt when they, you know, contact us. But then again, it doesn't help that a missile is coming towards your planet, 
Right. So, and it's kind of like yeah. our fault in a way, but it's not, but it is, but it isn't. So, well, I honestly, I, I think though, that is the beauty of those scenes. And I would have appreciated scenes like that in other episodes where uh, Voyager's poor reputation precedes them is that you just have two people talking mm-hmm. you know say like hey no 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 that that isn't us we can sort out this misunderstanding and that's something really satisfying to see here is just these two people talking and Janeway making it very clear like look I we will put our own lives on the line to protect you we wouldn't be contacting you if we were trying to hurt you but this is what we're willing to do. I thought all of those played out beautifully, and you just kind of hope, like, oh, okay, well, now if the Rokosans are living to see another day, maybe they can get ahead of this bad messaging yeah. <laughs> that's going out ahead of ahead of Voyager. I want to talk a little bit about the psychology of Dreadnought, which, okay, look, it's a computer. Mm-hmm. But it's a computer that has been programmed with all of these very interesting logical loops by Bolana Torres. Right. I mean, part of part of the underpinning was already there with the Cardassian programming, but Bolana came in at some point and changed it, you know. And I love, love, love this line that Janeway says to Dreadnought earlier uh, on the comm system. Is there any way that we can prove to you that this isn't a deception <laughs> that is such a great line yeah and i love it i love that one line of dialogue because it speaks to the universal problem of trying to talk someone out of a closely held belief and it's nearly impossible because true you can't prove a negative right you can't prove that this isn't a thing right and at the same time the right answer to what would prove something one way or another to you is evidence. Okay, so the computer, you know, what would it take to prove? I I need evidence to support that claim, Mm -hmm. right? So just thinking of this way, this is getting deep into the weeds here about what's going on in uh, Dreadnought's uh, mind of ones and zeros. You know, to the conspiratorially minded, there is no such thing as evidence because evidence to the contrary is merely seen as more evidence for the conspiracy or fake news Dreadnought, you know right right yeah yeah exactly like well yeah well that's what they want you to believe so they're they're posting that as a as a deception as a diversion mm-hmm. that is dreadnought's mindset and that is so interesting to me so the computer itself is engaged in what we might call like motivated reasoning it's in search of a conclusion that fits its desired outcome rather than taking in new facts and letting evidence lead it to a more accurate conclusion. I thought that was incredible, and it was so well written. Yes, it's a computer, but it is very much behaving like a human, <laughs> a human with a desired outcome and motivating itself, reasoning itself into the outcome that it wants. I thought that was great. It's also interesting that you're right. It, there was there was an answer that the computer had in its logic, and it mm-hmm. just kind of repurposed all of the information to still fit that same answer. No matter how many different ways that you're looking at kind yeah. of misinterpreting or reinterpreting said information, because it was either Balana is Balana and is my programmer, or is a Cardassian spy. And once it turned in Balana into a Cardassian agent or compromised, mm-hmm. anything that Balana said, rather uh, whether truthful or not, or whether with incontrovertible proof, 
mm-hmm. the computer would find a way to reverse the logic and find flaws in that to go back to you're a Cardassian agent. So yeah. it is, it's, uh, it's, that sounds just like something a Cardassian agent would say, Norman. <laughs> but I'm not a Cardassian agent. Oh, aren't you? <laughs> that, that's what a Cardassian agent would say. Yeah. If only you could believe what I'm telling you, John, as being true. You know, <laughs> but it is. It's and also trying to like. It was a really interesting, almost on like um, a way that you're flow charting logic for a logic board or for a computer. Trying to find a way mm-hmm. to kind of like go through the if yes, then go to this step. If no, then go to this step. And then from no, if yes, go to this step. Or if no, go to this step. Proceed to next step. That I saw, like, like that's mm-hmm. how that entire scene was getting played out. It's like an engineer trying to solve her own logic. That's working against her because she created the logic that she can't solve. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Amaz- it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I didn't really want to – I don't know how to like frame this without making it sound that I'm not on like either the side of Starfleet or the side of Voyager or the side of Janeway because uh, – That's my, my, my favorite kind of conversation. <laughs> but – okay. So you have – you have the missile, you know, you have Dreadnought there, and mm-hmm. it's just sheer luck that Voyager came upon Dreadnought. They found that probe that was destroyed. They were able to mm-hmm. identify the energy signature. Balana feels responsible because she she turned Dreadnought into this doomsday machine, right? Yeah. But it doesn't mean that they're responsible for saving a planet and putting their own lives at risk. Because... Uh, how so? All right. Tell because me. what if I'm just, these are like, what if questions? What mm-hmm. if that, that missile was, was caught in the, uh, caretaker's beam and Voyager wasn't, they wouldn't have been able to stop it, nor they, would they have the responsibility of stopping yeah. it. It's not, they didn't fire the missile. So it's not upon Janeway to put everyone at risk to stop the missile. They can do everything they can up to a point, but she's, again, speaking for the lives of everybody on that ship, that she's mm-hmm. going to explode the ship and kill everyone on board to save people who she didn't put in harm's way. They didn't do that. Now, I know that they're there to save lives, and I know that they're to, to uphold the Starfleet protocol of saving innocent lives. But what about the innocent lives on the ship? Yeah. There are innocent right. lives on that it's, ship, but the the innocent lives on that ship have also put themselves into a situation where they know th- that there are inherent risks. They know that there are risks involved with them being. What there. about the Maquis? Uh, well, see, it's let's it's see. Not most their of, most of them came from most of them came from Starfleet. No, but yeah, it's not not their choice specifically. It's just an interesting it's um, an interesting moral issue to wrestle with. It's your trolley yeah. problem, John. Right, you know, it is, yeah, and and I guess it's this interesting question of even if you didn't cause something to be the case, can you still be responsible for its outcome? Yes, uh, I mean that's, that's or, or, what I'm trying it, to know, say. Yeah, 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 and and I think that 
like it's very hard to argue with Janeway's position here, and especially because she does try to save her crew. Look, they're all going to evacuate. She's the one who's saying, look, mm-hmm. all those people might end up on uh, Rakosa 5 and live a very happy life. May not be as good as a planet with the 37s, but if they tried hard, they could they get back here if there. they wanted to. They should have stayed. Should have stayed. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, it looks at that point like Janeway herself is taking responsibility uh, maybe in place of Bellana, you know, Bellana has shot her shot. She has tried as much as she can. And at that point, it looks like she's failing. So Janeway is stepping in to take the responsibility that, that Bellana couldn't. But in the meantime, saving her crew, theoretically saving her but crew. But they're saving her crew so and it, making good on the promise that she made to them. See, that's kind of like where I'm yeah, getting at. Yeah, right? like, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You're not going to sacrifice the crew in lieu of stopping the missile, but you're also not getting them home. Mm-hmm. So what I'm what I'm trying to get at is, and and yeah. I know people out there, please don't be outraged. So I'm trying to look at both sides of the equation. That's what we do here on Mission Log. And what I'm looking at, yeah, yeah. is that the missile was there because of the caretaker. It wasn't there because yeah. Voyager fired that missile from some place and it's responsible because a planet was in the path of shooting that missile to stop something else evil from happening and that planet just got in the way of for whatever reason like the tracking system went wrong and then Bellana feels responsible and Janeway feels responsible because she ordered the firing the missile none of that happened the missile was just there and they accidentally came upon it but now Janeway feels like she has the right to terminate the the journey of the ship and stop those people from getting home. All of this hope that they've built into getting home is now gone. So I just like, I, I, I just wrestle with her choice there, you know, from a moral point of view, because I see in one hand that she is doing what is right, but she's not doing what is right for the people that she's promised certain things to. Yeah. You, you know, who didn't wrestle with that choice is, uh, Kellen, uh, get, get back to him. <laughs> I wonder if Jonas ever gets put on hold for a really long time when he calls the case on to sell them Voyager secrets. Well, here we are, John, at the end of Dreadnought. And as we do on every Mission Log episode, we come to the end, we take a look at if this episode has withstood the test of time, and then finally, if we were able to mine any morals, meanings, and messages. How do you mine something like that from a missile? Mm, That's a strange mm, thing. That's good, Mm -hmm. yeah. But we will, because, you know, we are good like that. (laughs) And we are going to start off with John. How did you feel about this episode, and does this episode hold up for you? Uh, Honestly, it really does. But, But I will say this, you know, Voyager in particular, and honestly, a lot of Star Trek at this time, has a very specific problem. Because the shows aren't serialized, they rely on filler when they don't have a solid B plot or when they feel like they need to stretch a character a little bit further. And those filler moments, those filler elements like the ones in this episode, let's count them. You got Samantha Wildman and the uh, Jonas Lorem communication. And then you got Tom Paris being the rascal that he is. They feel really out of place and they don't really drive the plot forward they they just sort of are they just sort of exist and they feel disjointed because moments like that aren't 
planned with this long arc in mind that we're used to with more serialized storytelling. And I realize, I understand that from the writer's point of view in 1995, that these are attempts to draw out longer plot threads or at least character threads that will carry us forward. But I just feel like there's not much investment in them. So it's an odd choice. It's like simultaneously there's too much and too little. There's almost too much where you can tell that the background thinking is, ooh, we need to mix it up. We need to add this character. We need to uh, you know, challenge our characters here with this. But then it's also too little because it's literally just a couple of minutes of screen time that get thrown into an episode. So it's very odd. And, and moments like that hurt an episode like this for me. But that said, once you focus on the story here, it's very solid. It really is. It really does just focus on solving the technical problem, but it does harken back to earlier Star Trek and some very familiar themes. I mean, it's the doomsday machine and it's the ultimate computer. Hell, if we're being that referential, it's also prototype. (laughs) <laughs> which we just did however many episodes ago. But but that's okay. I, I actually felt like in this version, it had a fresh approach. And I thought that there were solid scenes with Balana, and again, some just great moments with Janeway and her communication with Kellen. But maybe... I, maybe I'll get into this in the, in the morals, meanings, messages. We're almost undermining what could be a more powerful story with Balana and her creation and the stakes that are at play here because it feels like more just solving a technical issue than it is with like the moral issue. So I'm glad, Norman, that you brought that up in the last segment. But if you think about it, in our last segment, we barely talked about Balana. Balana is the center of this story, but Balana is there to solve a technical issue and kind of wrestle with maybe some feelings of guilt and concern over what she's done. But the mm-hmm. other characters are going through their own things. So, look, even if we're not breaking new ground here, I, I feel like maybe that's the worst thing that can be said about it. Yeah. Overall, this is a well-made episode. The acting is solid. Mm-hmm. Technically, I think it works very well. So, yeah, th- this episode is just solid. It's rock solid, and it works. Uh, maybe in a few months, uh, it mentally, I'll skip over <laughs> the parts of it that didn't work for me. What about you, Norman? Yeah, I'm glad that you made a point of uh, we didn't really focus on any like real serious discussion points with Balana because most mm-hmm. of her scenes, you know, with Dreadnought are just again logic problem solving. Where you could literally like take like parts of you can even condense like parts of uh, my uh, recap into you know Balana text to tech and fails. You know, because that's yeah. essentially what's happening like for large chunks of scenery, and. I'm with you, like, in your assessment. Like, I think that it's mostly yes on um, does this episode hold up just because it's a very serviceable episode. And it doesn't mean that mm-hmm. it's wrong. You yeah. know, it doesn't mean yeah. that it's, a you know, uh, has any, like, problematic issues with it. Serviceable is very strong. You know, uh, you can have fantastic serviceable meals, like a really, really good pizza. It's not, you know, it's not award-winning pizza, but it's also not the worst pizza ever. Of right. Which I'm not even really sure if there is any. But <laughs> right. you can make the argument, like, yeah, it's like maybe the doomsday machine a little bit like you mentioned or mm-hmm. if you want to go further back there's that uh, line of dialogue that Taurus had with the computer 
where she says, remember how we used to pay, play hypothetical games? Let's play one now. Mm. Kind of like Star Trek meets War Games. War Games, sure. Right? Yeah. If you don't know that, it's 1983. It stars uh, Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy. Uh, and, and, watch that. and going further back, I mean, I'm so glad you mentioned the 2001 stuff. Because, again, it's not about the computer losing its mind right. the way that 2001 is in those sequences. But just visually, tonally, we get a little taste of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a solid story. It's, it's just, mm-hmm. again, it's, it's very, it's a very workhorse episode. Mm-hmm. It's really well acted. I think that's actually where the strength of this episode really is. It's really well acted. The production value is incredible. Yep. I, I've made mention uh, several times throughout the course of this episode that I really do love kind of like that Cardassian aesthetic that they're bringing in. It's very mm-hmm. industrial, but also kind of like very logical in the way that it's laid out and designed. But, you know, Roxanne really does kill it in this episode, not only just as Bolana. But as the computer voice as well. So I'm wondering if, you know, when she was given the script, first of all, if you're an actor, you're like, wow, 75% of this script is me, right? Yeah. Either Balana or the computer. So I'm wondering, like, when she prepared for this role, was she, like, playing the computer voice in her head to bring out and coax Bolana's responses and vice versa to bring out the computer's responses and those, the way that those kind of those performances like came into being for this episode. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Tom storyline, I think I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt. It could turn into something a little bit more important. We don't know because we're not jumping the timeline. Mm-hmm. So here's one thing though, and I'm going to put on my small writer's cap here. Mm. I felt that the biggest problem with this episode is the actual toothlessness of the computer when it came to Bellana herself. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because if this dreadnought's supposed to be this unstoppable killing machine of a missile, then as soon as Bellana betrays it, it would have killed Bellana instantly in favor of its programming. Now, mm. I think it would have been interesting where Bellana had some type of OCP programming, like RoboCop, where the missile couldn't kill its own programmer. Oh, and yeah. That okay. would have caused yeah. a lot of yeah. internal strife between the computer and, like, you know, I'm going to kill you now, Bellana. And she's mm-hmm. like, I'd like to see you try. <laughs> and it started, and it's, there started these cascade system failures, which maybe is what happened. To give yeah. Bolana the edge towards the end. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I still think that it's highly recommendable. I think this episode is really fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, so going into kind of like the morals now and the meanings and messages, uh, was there something, John, that you were able to pull out of it that uh, was meaningful to you? I mean, yes and no. I, just mm-hmm. like this is an episode that has a lot of Bolana in it, I, I, again, we didn't really talk about Bolana. So if this is an episode that maybe on the surface has a little dabble into morals, meanings, messages, or themes, I don't think those themes are necessarily what the story is about. It really is about the technical process. It really is just kind of like raising the stakes, building the drama. But that's fine. That, that is okay in, as you just called it, a very serviceable episode. Um, so maybe that's... A strength, maybe it's not a strength. I, it it kind of depends. Like your mileage may vary on whether you see that as a good thing for this episode or a bad thing about this episode. That maybe it doesn't have quite a strong and moral message as the others that preceded it. Like I mentioned, like Doomsday Machine or the Ultimate Computer or a prototype or whatever. So then, does it really need a message? 
I will say that, again, the things that stood out to me, it is very refreshing to see Janeway and an alien talk through their problems and misunderstandings rather than shooting first. That's cool. And it's refreshing to see those aliens engage in a conversation instead of just believing the Kazon propaganda right away. Like mm-hmm. that, it, those were just lovely scenes and, and played for the heart that is inherent in them. So, it, yeah, when it comes to Balana's story, I don't know that there's something as profound or personal here as there was with Prototype. And if we're comparing it to those technology run amok stories like the Doomsday Machine or the Ultimate Computer, I, I, I do think that those gave us a little more threat and a little more room to contemplate things like the arms race or, or dangers of technology more so than this episode. This episode has felt much more isolated, where those other episodes that I mentioned, they feel a little more universal. So I, I, I don't I can't really say that that is what this episode is about. It is Balana outsmarting a computer, which cleverly, in essence, is her outsmarting herself because she built the safety protocols. So that's kind of cool. If there's some growth there for Balana, that that was clever. It was entertaining. But is there a message in that that is something you can take home? Maybe, maybe not necessarily. I love the choice, though, to have Balana's voice as the voice of the computer because it Very drives. Smart. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And it drives home that this is a problem of her own creation. And it drives home this idea that our actions have repercussions. So that making the personal even more personal, that was clever. And also, there's this great line that she has where she says early on, I was so sure I had anticipated everything that could go wrong. Like famous last words, right? It's not not quite, you know, sheer effing hubris, but it is an easily understood thing because we can sort of apply that logic to ourselves and think like, oh boy, I I have done everything possible for the best possible outcome. And then things blow up in our face. And it's very easy to point those things out with others when you see the mistakes that others make. So that's a very relatable thing, whether it's personally or sort of looking out into the bigger issues of the world, because, yeah, you can't anticipate everything that could go wrong. You simply can't. All you can do is try to make the best models and the best predictions you can based on the best evidence that you've got. And then we see an evidence-denying computer here that lets everything run amok. So a great deal of fun, maybe some cool ideas, but not a heavy you-see-Timmy moment, unless you caught one, Norman. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up, like, you can't anticipate everything, because that goes back to, you know, what I was saying about Janeway and her responsibility about stopping the missile. Because nowhere, I think, in Bellana's projections did she say, and I'm also going to plan for this missile to be whisked away by a coherent Tetrion beam and flung 75,000 light years into the Delta Quadrant so that it can begin its programming and find an innocent moon. I may or may not predict that, but I didn't put that in the computer's programming. Mm. Of course she couldn't. You, know, you mm-hmm. can't, again, and that's the most, like, the wildest prediction ever. If she did that, she might as well, like, enter the Delta Quadrant Powerball and, like, win <laughs> millions of credits. Right. Right? I think the only thing that I was looking at uh, at the very end was kind of like this 
strange fortune cookie wisdom, I, I started plugging in uh, certain ideas into Google and Basically, I came up with exactly what I was looking for, which is a meme. Uh, it's on those inspirational posters, and I'll give credit to all of those inspirational posters because they're kind of like the same. The past cannot be changed, forgotten, edited, or erased. It can only be accepted. Your past doesn't define you, but it can come back to haunt you. Mm. There are a bunch of different kind of like yeah. anonymous, you know, mm-hmm. again, inspirational posters. Or maybe this one's just more of kind of like a, a fortune or foretelling. There's this really nice scene between Bellana and Harry. And I love their scenes together, first of all, because she keeps calling him Starfleet, which I think is very <laughs> right. endearing. Yep. But she's like beating herself up about not having stopped Dreadnought when she had the chance. And Harry says, I bet it doesn't spend much time worrying about what it could have done differently. Like there is an obsession mm-hmm. that Balana has with her, with her relationships with her machinery. Prototype being one, she's yep. obsessed about not being able to stop that robot. And then here, I did that for you, John. Yeah, thank, here, you, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> she's obsessing about a problem that, in a way, she's responsible for, but she's not responsible for it here in the Delta Quadrant. It's not her responsibility that it ended up there. Mm. So yeah, you can't outrun your past. You can't obsess over it and hope that something changed. But here's the strange thing that I've seen in the last course of of the few episodes uh, with certain character developments. Tom can't outrun his past, but he's trying to in the Delta Quadrant. He can't outrun the way that he was raised. And we're seeing that kind of manifest itself now. Mm -hmm. You know, even... Even Harry, you know, when he was transported back to a different time, he can't outrun kind of like his own his own sense of honor, even though that honor is not allowing him to grow or choose better destinies for himself. So that's just the way he was raised, and he can't kind of get off the way that he was uh, programmed. In a, is not a word, <laughs> no, but that's a good word. Uh, no, it's I, I think not it necessarily untrue. And the same thing with yeah. Tom. Even the way that Janeway kind of conducts herself, you know, she can't outrun her Starfleet training, even though that Chakotay is trying to help her see things more organically and differently. Mm-hmm. So all of these characters have this really interesting dynamic now where the Delta Quadrant is challenging them to become different versions of themselves. And we're starting to see them embrace that but at the cost of a lot of kind of consternation. So maybe that's a central theme or a moral message that I'm seeing, not just in this episode, but in episodes that have led up to this one as well. Yeah. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the mission log discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, Death Wish. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. Thank you for calling. Your Federation secrets are very important to us. The next case on representative will be with you shortly. But first, please enjoy this 12-minute flute solo. End transmission.
This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.